All right, join me then. And we are in Matthew 27, and we're turning to chapter 28, and here we are looking at the resurrection. As we turn to this part of Matthew's gospel, you're jumping into what's so clearly a history lesson. Now, some of you hear that I just said history and lesson. This sounds like school, and some of you are groaning because you're thinking, I had just finished school, and here I've returned. Others of you, though, got excited. It seems to be a gene in my own family. We seem to love history. It doesn't matter what it is. One time, Erin was at a Bible study. She came home late at night. I was watching PBS. She's like, what are you watching? It's about whaling at Cape Cod. It's incredible. She's, <laughs> she laughed and then just walked away. <laughs> why is history important? Some of us love it because we're just captivated by story. But why is history important? Well, the pat answer that we often give or have heard well, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Supposedly, that's from Winston Churchill. A study of the past helps us, though, today and for the future as we look back, because we can learn to not repeat the failures of the past. So we can learn from history's mistakes, another way to say it, of course. And that's what we would often think makes the past relevant for today and maybe for tomorrow. Well, as we turn back the clock and look at history this morning, things are a bit different. That is, this history lesson's relevance does not reside simply on trying to learn from past mistakes, finding the examples to follow or not follow, though, of course, we'll see some of that. No, our look into the past this morning has a direct impact on you today, whoever you are, if you can hear my voice. It has an impact on you right now at this moment and for the rest of eternity, for how long your soul would exist. And this is why the focus of our study on this event of history, this event then must be the most significant event in all of history, namely, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This moment changed everything. Nothing is the same after this. And understand, Jesus' resurrection didn't just change things, of course, well, for Jesus, or change things for the disciples there of the first century, or change things for the Jewish leaders. No, it's a truth. As I've said, it impacts every person, every person in this room, that Jesus is alive. And that means because he's dead and now alive, He's not going anywhere. You're going to have to reckon with this Jesus. He is like an immovable truth that you're going to have to reckon with. You've got to respond to this truth because he's not moving. He already died. He's alive. He's not changing. You have to change to him. You've got to respond to him. You've got to respond to this truth. He's alive and he's going nowhere. How will you respond to the truth? That's our word this morning. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the gospel truth. How do you respond to it? How will we respond to the gospel truth that he's alive? And as we look at our text, we'll find five ways to respond or not respond to the truth of the gospel. And the first is this, don't discredit the gospel truth. Don't try and attempt to discredit, to undercut the truth of the gospel. We see this at the end of chapter 27, that last paragraph, verses 62 to 66. Because understand, if you try and discredit the truth, you're never going to win. 
You're never going to succeed. You might try and suppress the truth, but it will always rise to the top just as Jesus rose from the dead. And though that's the case, and of all people, the Jewish leaders should have known this because of the truthfulness of God's word, and yet, nevertheless, they persisted. They persisted in trying to discredit Jesus, to undercut the truth, following him wherever he went and all that he taught, going back, trying to deprogram the masses, so they would say, such that it eventually led to their plot to murder him. And as we've been following along in the gospel, then it seems like they've won, doesn't it? Jesus is dead like they wanted. He's in the tomb like they wanted. And yet it's interesting It appears like what we see in this text, the Jewish leaders are not going to hold their breath. They've seen enough fantastic things associated with Jesus. They're not just going to sit back and hold their breath. They're not ready to take their victory lap. And so they come to Pilate once again to hatch a plan, to plot a guarantee to forever prove that Jesus was wrong. See, he's dead. He's in the tomb. He isn't who he says he was. Verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, so now that we're coming to Saturday, day of preparation, that's Friday, they come to Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Now this is a curious thing, isn't it? The Jewish opponents who kept dogging Jesus through his whole ministry, they are the ones that understood Jesus actually spoke of his resurrection. When his closest disciples, they seem to have no idea, though Jesus taught on it repeatedly. They were the ones that understood, oh, the Messiah was supposed to rise again. They understood Jesus predicted his own resurrection. So they're going to take steps in light of that. Now, that's not because they necessarily thought he would rise again. But they worried how the deception would spread if those disciples intervened. And maybe stole the body and spread the tail. We can't let that happen. We've got to stop this. We have to protect the tomb. We've got to go right to the source. We've got to cut this thing off entirely at the pass. Seal the tomb. We've got to guard the body. And so that's how they sell it to Pilate, who I'm sure by now has seen enough of the Jews, hasn't he? He wants this whole Jesus thing behind him as well. And so He buys it hook, line, and sinker. Verse 64. They suggest to him, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate, too, has had enough of all this. If there's a way to make sure we stomp this fire out, let's do it. Let's stop all the hysteria and the stories. Yes, let's guard the tomb. Verse 65, Pilate's response, he said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. Now, it's a little unclear what exactly does Pilate mean here. Does he just brush them off? seems to read that way in the main text of the ESV. You have a guard of soldiers all your own. You go see to it yourself. As if, I don't care, I don't want to hear any more about it, you see to it. Or you might even notice a footnote there in your Bible Instead of, you have a guard, it could be translated, take a guard. And I think this is what Pilate means. That is, he's offering them a Roman guard for them to leverage and use. You have a Roman guard at your service. I'm giving them to you. Yes, go guard that tomb. I don't want to hear any more about this Jesus story. 
Again, the Greek text can be taken either way. But I think, indeed, Pilate is supportive. He is helping. He's trying to quelch this whole Jesus movement. And let me tell you why, for at least three reasons, why I think it's a Roman guard and that Pilate's in on this. First, he calls this set of guards a custodian. That's actually a Latin word. And it's a fitting way to describe a Roman set of soldiers. That is, these are not Jewish soldiers. These are Romans. Furthermore, the Jewish leaders later on, they offer to cover for the Roman soldiers so that they don't get in trouble, namely with Pilate. We see that in chapter 28, verse 14. They say, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. We will keep him out of trouble. See, the thing is, if these were Jewish soldiers to the temple guard going to guard the tomb, they couldn't get in trouble really with Pilate. But if they were Roman soldiers, they're in big trouble if they abandon their post and Jesus rises from the dead and they don't keep him in the tomb. Their lives would be forfeit. But finally, too, the third reason, there's a seal placed on the tomb. And this surely was a sign of Roman authority. Verse 66 of chapter 27, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, to be clear, the point of a seal in this case is not to make sure it's impossible to open. This isn't concreting the stone to the tomb. That's not the idea of sealing here. The the idea of a seal is like how you might seal an old-style envelope with wax. That is to show that whose authority commissioned it, and by whose authority it can be opened, and only by the addressee, such that when you open that envelope, the seal's broken, we know it's been opened. Well, that's the same idea here with the tomb. The seal's broken, we know it's been opened, and you better not open it unless you're under the authority of Rome. But in the end, of course... It doesn't matter what authority Rome says it has. It doesn't matter how many times they place their seal on the stone. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you try and post there to guard it. It doesn't matter what consequences you threaten. If somebody tries to open it, it doesn't matter how big or heavy the stone is, Jesus is coming out. You're not going to hold him in. The tomb's going to open. You're going to look inside. Guess what? No one's home. Despite all of the hindrances, all of the slanders, all of the roadblocks that they might foist against Christ and the gospel to try and discredit the truth, none of it will work. The truth will stand because Jesus is alive. That was true back then in the first century. That's true today. He's risen. And nothing can stop or alter that truth. He's risen. Nothing can stop and alter the truth that He defeated sin so that sinners in Christ can be fully forgiven. He's risen, and that truth cannot be discredited, no matter what others say, no matter what guilt others might throw on you, no matter how much they try and discredit the gospel message. It changes nothing of the truth. He's risen. You're forgiven if you're in Him. Don't discredit the truth of the gospel. Tied to that, very related, next... Don't oppose the truth of the gospel. Don't oppose the truth of the gospel, the first four verses then of chapter 28. Because here we find out what happens to those who try and oppose the truth. And here it is in short, you lose. You stand against the truth, you can't win. Because Jesus already won. Now we come to this as Matthew now sets the stage for Sunday morning and the resurrection itself. And so we first encounter these first witnesses, these faithful women. Verse 1, chapter 28. 
Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And remember from our previous study, the two Marys here. First, we have Mary Magdalene. She was the Galilean woman who had seven demons tormenting her. Jesus had delivered her from those seven demons. And since then, she had been tagging along and following Jesus, supporting him the whole way in his ministry, such that she was there when he was crucified. She was there looking on when he was buried. She knew right where the tomb was, and of course, she's returned there. And along her side was the other Mary here, and that's Jesus' own mother. Again, Mary, too, we see that in verse 55 of chapter 27, had seen the whole thing. And why was that? What was happening? But he was... God was preparing these women to then be the first witnesses of the three cardinal historical facts of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And these women see it all, and they will be the first witnesses of it all. Jesus was setting them up for that. And so here they come. They're coming to the tomb to see that first part, the resurrection. However, of course, the women don't know this. They've seen him killed. They've seen him buried. They're on their way to the tomb. But they think they're on the tomb not to see him resurrected. They think they're on the way to the tomb to anoint the dead, the corpse, with spices. To finish off his burial, make it appropriate. Remember, he was rushed off the cross and almost thrown in the tomb to be put in the crypt before Sabbath. So as they approach that early Sunday morning, they even, Mark's gospel records, they wonder, who's going to move the stone for us so that we can go in and anoint the body with these spices that we've prepared That's what they're on their way to do. But before they get there, something glorious happens. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, as we compare this with other gospels, understand this, what's coming in verse 2 to verse 4, that all happens before the women get there to the tomb. That is, the other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, they all present the women as they show up. The tomb's already open. So Matthew fills us in, well, how did that happen? And in particular, because Matthew's the only Gospel that mentions it, what about those guards that were sent in front of the tomb? What happened to them? And Matthew says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. And it's glorious. And it evidences why opposing the gospel, standing in the way, trying to stand in the way of the purposes of God, prove so futile, prove so foolish, and terrifyingly they see dangerous. First of all, there's a great earthquake. The ground shakes, rumbles, and rolls. And indeed, if you've ever felt that or been in an earthquake, you know how settling, unsettling it can be to have the very ground you stand on be shaking. The one thing you thought was sure in this world, shaking all around you. But then, if that wasn't enough, to discover that the shaking was coming from an angelic being flashing down from heaven, descending like a comet, crashing to earth right before you. And indeed, the sight of him, the angel, must have been dazzling. We hear about it in verse 3. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. This testifies he has a glory from another world heaven. And then back there in verse 2, going back, the, the angel surely just quite effortlessly moves the large stone out of the way that had covered the tomb's entry. You might say that might be a little intimidating. See the soldier's response to it all, verse 4. 
And for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That word trembled is the very word for earthquake. There was an earthquake in their heart at that moment. Shaking in their boots, these Roman killing machines, these intimidating brutes, they're trembling with fear because they know they've encountered a power far stronger than they are. And they seem to just pass out. Matthew says, they become like dead men. I love it. Do you see the poetic irony here? It's masterful. Do you see it? It's the Roman soldiers. They are the only dead men near the tomb. They're the only dead people that can be found near this tomb. Because Jesus, who they thought was there, who was dead, he's gone. Because he's alive and he's risen from the dead. The tomb's empty. The only people that look like dead men near this crypt are the Roman soldiers who are passed out scared. Don't oppose the gospel. You will be proven the fool in the end. Jesus won. He beat death. He beat sin, death, and hell. He's king over all because he's alive. You can try and oppose him now. You can concoct all of your arguments, all your rationalizations. But in the end, you know what's going to happen? You're going to die, and you're going to be face-to-face confronted with this risen Jesus. And he's your judge. And you will be made then to bow the knee. And you will be far more terrified of him than these Roman soldiers were of that angel, or at least you should be, and you will be. And you will be made to bow to him. It's horrifying. And yet, that's in concert with this. But that's then. But now, before you die, he offers mercy. This is the greatest news there ever was. Death can be conquered, could sin can be vanquished, and Jesus did it, and he calls you, bow now, and I will show you grace. But don't keep opposing the truth. That is not a battle you can ever win. Embrace the truth now. Bow the knee now. Find mercy now. Don't oppose the truth. Also, related to that would be, don't fear, but tell the gospel truth. And that kernel truth is this, Jesus rose from the dead, verses 5 to 7. See, those that turn to Christ now, that trust Christ now, we get to hear these assuring words from the empty tomb. Don't be afraid. You have no reason to fear. So now, apparently, by the time the ladies get up to the tomb, it's still early in the morning. The soldiers have cleared away. They've passed out, fallen over. They've now scrambled somewhere in hiding. And so the women, as they approach, to their shock, the tomb's already open. The great stone is rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. What's going on? Now we start to understand what what this whole angel thing was about, why he had to come down, why he had to open the tomb, why the soldiers had to be scattered and scared off. It's about making a way for these women to be a witness of the empty tomb. Because understand that. The angel didn't open the tomb to let Jesus out. What do we see with Jesus as he's resurrected? You know, he just walks into rooms that were all locked with the disciples. He apparently did not have a problem walking through walls in his resurrected state. He didn't need the door open to the tomb so he can get out. So what is this all about then? Why the angel? Why scaring off the soldiers? It's so the ladies can come in, so the world can come in and see he's risen. Again, he's preparing them to be witnesses, that they can see inside he's gone, he's alive, he's not dead. 
And yet, as they approached the tomb and that dazzling angel seated upon the stone, you can imagine they approached with trepidation. But then the angel puts forth these words of reassurance. Verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Stop trembling. There's no need to fear. You have no reason to be afraid. And, and why not? Look at the reason he gives. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. How does that work? What, what's the connection there? What, what's the angel saying? In effect, he's saying, I know why you're here. Consider all that the crucifixion meant. Remember, we talked about this. About not just painful, but it was shameful. It was the utter rejection by the world and even by God. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And yet, as he's being shamed and cursed, these faithful women do not, in the end, turn their back on Jesus, do they? They come to him. They still love him, shamed and cursed as though he was. And so they were looking for him, dead as though he was, at the tomb. And that's reasonable. If you're going to go find a dead person, you might as well go to the tomb where they're buried. Only here, the dead person's not home. Verse 6. Don't fear. I know you were seeking a crucified one. That means he's dead. But verse 6, he's not here. Why? Because he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. He's not in the tomb because he's not dead, at least not any longer. I love the way Jesus describes this in his own words as he appears to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. You remember these words? Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He tells John, who is terrified at the sight of Jesus, his old friend, by the way, but Jesus looks a little different than he did the first time. And here's what Jesus tells his dear friend, John, fear not. I am the first and the last. And I am the living one, he says. But then he notes this, I did die. I died, but now I'm alive forevermore. To never die again is the idea. And why not? Because there's no need to die again. Because death has been overcome. He's alive. And you know what that means? The very cause of death in the first place has been conquered. It's been eliminated. It's been overcome. And what was that? Sin. He won. He came to save his people from their sins. And the empty tomb proves you have no need to fear. I won. I saved you. He defeated them both, sin and death. And now he tells his people, don't fear. There's no need to be afraid even of death. I beat that one too. And as proof, these first women are invited there back, verse 6, to see where he once laid, where he laid dead, motionless, lifeless, but not anymore because he's gone and he's alive. And so now are we alive in God, now fully forgiven. Because that's what the empty tomb is. It proves that the forgiveness has happened. Sin has been vanquished. It proves the price has been paid. The cash or the check has been cashed and accepted. And your confirmation number that the transaction went through, the empty tomb. And that's why it's so important that even his burial is a part of the good news we proclaim. That he died for our sins, he was buried, 
and he rose from the dead on the third day. And that's why these women were brought and they were invited here to see this moment, the empty tomb, not to be wallflowers, not to be just spectators. They are brought there to be the first reporters of the resurrection. Verse 7. The angel's still talking now. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So it's interesting. They're tasked. They're put on a mission. They're commanded to go and tell what they have seen and experienced. They're actually tasked with going to tell the disciples. And they're going to tell them two things. First, that he is risen from the dead. And second, he's going to meet you in Galilee. Lord willing, next time when we talk about the Great Commission and why that's in Galilee. We'll talk more about the significance of Galilee. But let's just look at this first to see that they have a message and they have a mission. Because actually those commands they receive, go quickly and tell, go and tell, that parallels almost precisely grammatically, to nerd out for a second, the Great Commission. We have the very same construction and commands, go and make disciples. They are said to go and tell. We are commanded to go and make disciples. And what's the connection? Well, you understand the first step in making disciples is what? You got to tell, you got to tell the news. The news, the good news that he died for sins. He was buried and rose again. That's our message and that's our mission that we go with to all the nations. And we go with, like those women, bringing testimony and witness to Jesus' power that he's alive. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by speaking, of course. But we can even tell of our own experience how we've been changed. So you go through the book of Acts, and much of what the apostles talk about is that Jesus is alive. And how do we know? Because he gives us spirit and changes us. That's part of our message and our mission. Do you see this? To testify, Jesus is alive. And what's proof? He's radically changed my life. I'm different now because I've met Christ. So we are to see the gospel, know the gospel, come to believe the gospel, but simultaneously then we are commissioned out with the gospel to the world to extend that same ministry of reconciliation to all the world. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. But not only that, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, what does he mean? In Christ, God was reconciled the world into himself. How? Not counting their trespasses against them because of the cross. And then what has he also done? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are shown mercy to extend mercy by speaking the gospel. That's our call. To go tell the world that he can forgive sinners, that he's alive to change sinners. He's forgiven me. He's changed me. Let me tell you about him. Because he can forgive you too. This is our mission. How do you respond to the gospel? Don't fear and tell the gospel truth, but also don't fear and so then rejoice in the gospel truth. In particular, what's the truth? You will see Jesus. Verses 8 to 10. That is, we are not only commanded to spread the word, but by example of these faithful women, we are called to rejoice in it. So maybe that word for us this morning is, don't lose your own joy in the gospel. Remember what he's done and what he will do. See, right from the get-go, as they hear the news, the women obediently obey. They go off to find their friends, the disciples, and spread the news. 
But as they go, we see in verse 8, they are ladies of mixed emotions. No further comment, but verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. That is odd, isn't it? How do you have fear and great joy at the same time? Again, no further comment. But I will say this. Who can blame them? They surely have encountered the greatest and most surprising truth news ever heard. Jesus, who you thought was dead, is actually alive. I mean, consider just moments before how all of their dreams and hopes that rested on Jesus all got dropped, scattered, demolished as he was lying in the tomb. And now, suddenly, as they are going to anoint his body, they're actually, all their hopes, pardon the pun, are resurrected. What do you mean? He's alive? And so they're so happy, and yet I think it's mixed with they're afraid to get their hopes up again. This is too good to be true. I can't get my hope back up. I'm afraid to get my hope back up to then have that reality crash on me. Okay? Pause. Check notes. This hope is not going to disappoint because he really did rise from the dead. He really is alive. So now they go and tell that message. Now, Matthew, as we continue, he stays with the women and follows them as we go on to verse 9. But we know some events, as we compare with the other Gospels, some events take place in your Bibles between verses 8 and 9. So, for example, between verses 8 and 9, the ladies actually do make it back to the disciples and tell them Jesus is risen from the dead. We know that as we read Luke 24 and Luke 20. Because remember, when the disciples first hear the news, Peter and John, they go rush out and run to the empty tomb. And they, like the women, see the empty tomb, though they have yet to see Jesus. Seems then, as Peter and John run ahead, the ladies follow behind them, such that as then Peter and John leave the tomb, the ladies are back there, and we find even Mary weeping in front of the tomb. We read about that in John. And then Jesus appears to them. I think that's what Matthew here talks about next in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What a greeting that was. And most fundamentally, this greeting means, actually, it's a command, rejoice! Take joy! In this hello is a command to take up rejoicing that they have found in what Jesus has done, that he's alive. And as they hear it, they fall at his feet, worshipping him as God. It seems to, as they cling to him, it seems to communicate something like, I can never put you out of my sight again. I can never let you go again. I can't lose you a second time, right? But to that, Jesus reassures them once more with his own words of peace, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. In effect, it's okay, you can let go. Don't be afraid. Rather, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Look, I want to show you three things. First, Jesus, like the angel, commands them to put fear away. Do not be afraid. Recall how when they ran to the disciples, they were mingled with fear and great joy. And he says, put the fear aside. You have seen me, and you will see me, and this is not for the last time. 
Put away the fearful doubting. Keep up the rejoicing. And no, as we've talked about, nothing can discredit or take away that truth. We'll talk more about that. Second, he bids the women to talk to the disciples. But especially here, notice how Jesus refers to his disciples. What does he call them? Brothers. What a glorious word that is. John's gospel captures this interchange like this. John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus says, Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. If there's any question, if you were in the family of God, the cross and the empty tomb solves it. You are adopted in, fully owned, fully embraced, such that the love that the Father has for His Son, it has spilled over for all those for whom Christ has died, all those that trust in Him. He loves you. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, that we would understand something of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. God loves you in Christ, just like Christ. Welcome to the family. That's not true because you're so great. That's true because Christ is. He died for your sin and rose from the dead. Also, notice this. What will the brothers find as they go to Galilee? They will see Jesus. That's what they're going to see. That is, they will not merely have to bear the message of the gospel, Jesus' death for sin, burial, and resurrection, secondhand. They will see the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes in Galilee. He reassures them that they will get to be messengers that saw him face to face. Now, as we turn it to ourselves, we don't share that privilege with the apostles. How they got to see the risen Jesus. We don't have that right now. And rather, John's gospel even ends with these words from Jesus, doesn't it? John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to whom we call doubting Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. There's actually a blessing reserved for us who haven't seen Christ in his resurrected state. And yet we still believe in him. We still trust him. That we still believe and trust him even though we haven't seen him. But that does not mean you will never get to see him. For we will. You will if you trust him. If you believe in him that he died for your sins and defeated them, and that he rose from the dead, then you are forgiven, then you are given eternal life. And what that means is that even if you die, you will live in a resurrected body to see him face to face forever. This is the glorious hope of heaven. It's God. To see God in his fullness, the God who is our risen Christ, the God who is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the God who will wipe away every tear from your eyes, where death shall be no more because you will be delighting in him for an eternity. The God who came from heaven to die for your sin because he loves you. This is the God you will see. Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible, promises it like this. Those who believe they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Maybe that sounds weird to you. We're going to get strange tattoos or something. No, that's not what this is about. This means that he claims you. You are his. You belong to him. And that'll never change. Such that he goes on, night will be no more. They, us, will need no light of lamp or sun. 
Why? Because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever in his presence. As we saw in 16, to be delighted at his right hand forevermore. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he chose you. Why? Because he died for you. Why? Because he's risen. Why? I don't know. Because he's a gracious Christ. And that's the great prize of our faith, to know our Christ. This is eternal life. Praise the risen Christ. So rejoice, brethren, those adopted into the family. Heaven and the pleasures of God are yours, and the resurrection proves it, because death cannot even separate you from him. Finally, then, how do we respond to the truth of the gospel? You must not try and suppress the truth. Don't suppress the gospel truth. Verses 11 to 15. Despite how great this news is of the gospel, many still refuse to believe. And so they suppress the truth. They exchange it for a lie instead. And we find that sentiment embodied here by the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers once more. So Matthew picks the story back up with these fainting soldiers who have had their tails between their legs. They've run back to report what's happened to the Jewish leaders who conscripted them. And so we pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 28. And while they were going, that is, the ladies were going off back to the disciples, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And again, the Jewish leaders hear this, and it's startling. The exact thing they didn't want to happen has seemingly happened. This is a problem. Circle the wagons. Convene the council, guys. We need a plan. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, here's their plan. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. Guys, what are we going to do? I got it. Here's what we'll do. We're going to lie. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to pay you to lie. You got to tell everybody you fell asleep on the job. You were terribly incompetent that these very intimidating Jewish disciples of Jesus came and somehow stole the body out of the tomb. You guys are total failures, but you got to spread the word. Oh, and don't worry. I know Pilate might get upset about that, but we'll light it for you too. Verse 14, we'll cover for you. Make sure you don't get in trouble. You lie, we lie, we all lie. Deception just abounds. And then it's swallowed by many. Why? Because that's what they'd rather believe. Matthew notes that this lie prevailed among the Jews that very day. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Justin Martyr of the next century from the apostles. He says that same story kept getting spun and the Jews still held to it in his time. And just doing a quick Google search this past week, many still try and say this is exactly what happened. This stands then, though, as Matthew draws out, another great stroke of irony. Really the irony and folly of unbelief. Because go back, look at the end of chapter 27 as the Jewish leaders are trying to sell this plot to Pilate. What did they say? What did they call Jesus? Look at verse 63. We remember how that imposter, and in the, in the Greek, the idea he's a deceiver. And then they sold it to Pilate on that to guard against deception. Verse 64 of that chapter, that last fraud or deception will be worse than the first. And yet, as we turn to chapter 28, what do we find? 
Who are the imposters? Who are the frauds? Who are the liars? Who are the cheats? It's not Jesus, but it's them. They're willing to lie and have others lie to hide the truth. How hypocritical are they? Can't they see that? Do they even have an idea of how hypocritical they are? I don't know. It astonishes us, doesn't it? Shocking. If it were not so just illustrative of how strong unbelief can be in the heart. Because you would hope, you would hope they hear the news from the soldiers that they might reevaluate their assessment of the evidence. You know, they, they predicted Jesus' resurrection. And then they start getting this story about angels, earthquakes, blinding lights, open tombs. Of all people, they should have been like, uh-oh, maybe he did rise from the dead. Let's go investigate. They don't even do that. Maybe it's because they actually believe he rose from the dead. But they don't care. Or they do care. They just won't trust him anyways. Why? What's the issue? The issue with unbelief is not the right amount of evidence. It's not the right argument. The issue with unbelief is that you don't want to repent that you love your sin too much. That's why Paul talks about in Romans, they suppress the truth. What's already true, they suppress it in their unrighteousness. Sin has such a hold on them that they won't turn from it and humble themselves before Jesus. That's the power of sin and unbelief. It suppresses the truth. So what happens? We spin out lies and we are quick to pay and buy them and believe them. Again, why? So we can stick to our sin. So we don't have to be confronted with the truth that Jesus lives. We're quick to believe. Maybe maybe the disciples did steal the body. Or or maybe Jesus only fainted or swooned on the cross. Or or maybe there was some mix-up. Everybody was at the wrong tomb. Or maybe just all of those people from the first century, they all were just liars. And they just made up the whole thing. If that seems more likely to you, trust me, that does not stem from rational, sound, objective thinking. Where does it come from? A sinful heart that's grasping at strawy lies to find some excuse to not believe, to find an excuse to not repent. Because understand, God's Word has proven many times over in at least three ways Jesus is indeed alive. First, you have the very testimony of the inerrant Word of God, and He does not lie. Second, you have the Countless prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We've been looking repeatedly at Isaiah 53, where we saw Isaiah, who gave those prophecies 700 years before Jesus even came to earth, and they were fulfilled to a T. How does that happen? That doesn't happen unless you know the truth and are in control of the truth and can control of history and can bring it all to pass. But finally, what about the lives of those who wrote these testimonies, the apostles? Oh, they were liars. They were, they were after power and authority and money and security and popularity. Oh, really? One scholar rightly observed, it was 300 years before anyone gained anything except insults, danger, torture, and death by believing in the resurrection. And if you doubt that, remember what happened to all the apostles. They were martyred. Or think about the life of the Apostle Paul before he was martyred, all that he endured for the gospel. All he endured because he believed and said, there is a resurrection and Jesus is it. He was tortured, beat, constant danger, and anxiety and death. Why would he do that? 
Why would he put himself through such torture? Why? Because he knew the tomb was empty and Jesus was alive. That's why. And he knew Jesus, as he promised, would raise him from the dead. Otherwise, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, Christian life is a waste. We're wasting our time here if Jesus isn't alive right now. But that is no waste, for he is alive. He died on the cross, but he's alive to give eternal life to his people, even in the resurrection. And so because it is true, the tomb is empty, Christ is alive, here's Paul's charge for us at the end of that great exposition of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. How do we live in light of this truth of the resurrection? Here's what Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he beat it all. So what? What does that mean for us today? Therefore, my beloved, he goes on, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because Jesus will resurrect you after this life. Why is it not in vain? Because Jesus is alive to raise you. Why is it not in vain? Because he paid for your sins to forgive you, to make you right with God. Why is it not in vain? Because he's alive and he will raise you from the dead. This is why. And he will reward you for every work in him. So instead of trying to suppress the truth of the resurrection, not believing it, or so often probably what we do, we forget it or we ignore it, which what does that look like? Well, we just would rather stick with our sin than live in light of the resurrection. And what does it look like to live in light of the resurrection? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for our risen Christ. Because in view of the resurrection, whether it's His or whether it's our own to come, your labor for Him is never a waste, never in vain. Let's praise Him for this. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we ask that You be merciful to us that we would see that our labors for you, labors in preaching the gospel, labors in obedience, turning from sin, labors in discipling our households and our children, labors in encouraging the church, living the one and others, our labors in our giving to missions and to the sake of the church, none of this is in vain. None of it escapes your eye. And in your mercy, somehow, you will actually reward us for these things, works that you have done prepared beforehand. Oh, we praise you that you're a gracious God. Give us a continual view and assurance of Jesus' life. Work that life in us by your Spirit as a testimony to the world that you're alive, forgiving, and changing sinners' hearts. We know in that you'll be glorified, for that's what we pray for. Amen.